Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, a conversation where good thoughts help renew the mind with the Word of God. I'm Charlie Carter, and I'm here with Tim Little and Andy Stearns. Let's jump into the conversation. Welcome to the Thinklings Podcast, summer episode spectacular. How are you guys? I'm good. I'm doing well. I mean, I'm mowing my lawn more now these days, which is not as fun. My son has an opportunity to mow somebody else's lawn. So, ooh, does he mow your lawn though? Yes, they've been. They have been mowing our lawn. My lawn. I mean, I'm from a position of ignorance here, but if I had kids, they would mow the lawn. (laughs) They do mow the lawn. Praise the Lord. That's what they should do. I pay them two dollars. Oh, you pay for man. (laughs) Two dollars. American dollars? That's why when they mow somebody else's lawn, it sometimes doesn't go so well because they actually get paid. Yikes. You have to work for your, you have to help out the family. You don't need, you know. All righty. So summer episodes are going to be just slightly different. We don't really have like a main content. Like none of us have like, oh, we're going to talk about the theology of mowing lawns today. Like we're not going to actually do that. We're just going to talk about books and business. Which I know I'm not supposed to say that, so just hold on, Tim. But it's a summer episode. It's summer cool. episode. So it's okay. Who cares? So, and right. then and then we're gonna well we're gonna close with like a devotional. So it's a little hopefully you know hopefully maybe shorter than what we normally do, but that probably won't happen. So <laughs> that sound good to you guys? <laughs> that sounds good. Let's to give me. it a shot. <laughs> so all that to say, we have some Thinklings business to tend to. Books and business. Let's talk about some books. I'll go first. So as you've heard on a bunch of episodes, I am reading a lot of books about hermeneutics and homiletics. And this book I've got right here is How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament, 12 Steps from Exegesis to Theology. And it's by Jason DeRushi, DeRushi, uh, forward by D.A. Carson. I think they that's a strategic thing to put on your, well, on your cover. Well, is a pretty well-known Old Testament scholar, too. Yeah. Well, He's written a few books. I don't know him, so... I'm, I'm not saying anything. I'm just going to sit back and watch this. Okay, Happen. so I'm only, I'm only about 100 pages in, and uh, if uh, my professors are listening to this, yes, I know the book is due on Friday night, so... I'll get it done by then. <laughs> they don't listen. To by then. They don't listen. I guarantee you they don't. But so what I really like about this is he has these little symbols of like someone hiking, like going on a walk or hiking. See that? Yeah. Oh, that's and nice. And they're like trailheads. Like and it's like you can see based on the rigor of the guy in the picture, like how difficult this idea is. And so when he gets into, there's like normal stuff, which is someone out on a little leisurely walk. But then there's like a hiking guy and it's like, this is difficult. And it's when he gets into more language, Hebrew study of of things. And uh, this would be a moderate section, but he does get into some really good principles of Hebrew exegesis, Mm, understanding what a narrative mainline is, understanding how a poetic text and a narrative text are different. Mm, I'll have to check this out. Yeah. And uh, like he says, I'm not going to read it. There's, there's too much to read, but it's very good. He looks at the same stories in different texts, uh, like the example is in Judges. When is it? Um, Jael, Jael, Yael, Yael. Uh, she's the she's famous for uh, driving the tent stake through the head of the other, of the guy. Uh, that's actually recorded as a narrative and as a poem. Like it's described in both ways. And what I thought was really interesting is he put them right next to each other, 
and he tried to show you how the different genre accentuates different things. The story format is trying to chronologically tell you what happened, but then the poem form is trying to get you to maybe see with a different eye, to feel it, to maybe understand a point emotionally rather than just chronologically. And I thought that point was good. Uh, I was taught in my seminary education by someone at this table that Old Testament genre studies is kind of a farce. Um, And so I don't really care so much about genre study in the Old Testament. (laughs) But I thought he made some good points about the difference, difference between narrative and poetry. And he has a a pretty lengthy section about law too, that I just kind of, I have to, I have to do a little bit more careful of a walkthrough on that. But I think he's, it seems like a really good book about if you're, if you're wanting a really careful exegesis process for the old Testament, it looks like a really good book. I, as I've already mentioned, I haven't finished it yet, but I do think I would already put it like a five on the goodness scale. I think, I think it's a, it's organized really well. I think that's, it's, it's pro so far. There's clearly a difference between prose and poetry. The prose and poetry distinction is pretty clear. Even in the Hebrew, you have the vav consecutive forms. I and meant prose in like I was a good thing joke. about the book. I wasn't talking about prose. Uh, like I was going to be. What about the cons in poetry? Uh, <laughs> that's all I got. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> horrendous. We just yeah. high fived. If you couldn't hear that, and we got a horrendous. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I do teach that there's a difference between prose and poetry. In fact, Hebrew exegesis one is on prose. Which is primarily yours. <laughs> I took that class, but you've you've really reworked that class since I took it. Yeah, even right? when you took it, I focused on prose. The difference is Hebrew exegesis two now totally is poetry. So I teach parallelism and spend an entire lecture on it. I work through uh, literary devices and spend like two different class periods on it. That's the one that's changed a lot. So there are differences between those. What I have problems with is when people look at Genesis chapter one and say, "Oh, well." Genesis 1 is a different kind of genre. Well, it's It's a pros. different kind of kind? Yeah, well, well uh, they'll, I have seen, like, the framework view, and um, others have, have said, oh, this is a unique kind of genre that's not anywhere else in the Old Testament. Well, if you say that Genesis 1 is a unique genre that's not anywhere else in the Old Testament, then, and if genre is your key to interpret the text, then what did you just do? Yeah. Yeah, it's, you it's got its created, own rules. Yeah. You just created yep. a genre that has interpretive rules that's based upon nothing else except for that passage. So you've just packed in your theological presuppositions into the genre, which is then your key to interpret the passage. So I've seen that on several different occasions in uh, genre studies. And so usually I what I explain to people is, yeah, you know what? There's a difference between a law code and a narrative. And most people just reading the text can usually figure that out. There's a difference between a proverb and a story. And most people, when they're just reading the passage, they can usually figure that out. So we kind of put this huge elevated status upon genre. And I would contend that it's not as complicated as we make it out to be. And these whole idea of keys to interpretation... I, I, uh, I mean, it's important, but it's not that important. You should be able to figure it out. It's not that complicated. Okay. I do have a question. I, I've one, I should have wrote this down. It's specifically for you. So he makes a big deal about how he doesn't agree with the canonical order of the BHS. And he, he wants to go with the Jewish canonical order of the Baba Batra. Does that ring any bells to you? There are a few different canonical orders of, um, 
the Old Testament. So I'm not sure which one the Baba Batra is. I read an article, it's yeah. actually a dissertation on the order of the Megilot and how you have the different ordering of the Megilot's the five scrolls. So Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, and Esther. So the order of those. And uh, so it's not a universal, like everybody... Um, agrees with BHS. Yeah. So his order here, it, the, uh, the major prophets are out of chronological order. Ruth is totally separate from its temporal context. So it doesn't put Ruth next to Joshua and judges. It actually moves it over. So Ruth is right after, uh, the minor prophets and yes. then right before the Psalms. Yes. That's the specific one that I've studied. So yeah. Ruth has historically been located in two sections of the Hebrew canon by judges, which is where it is in the English Protestant canon, um, judges Ruth because it's the same chronological temporal setting, which seems to be what he prefers. I disagree because they didn't care about time, which is reflected in the Hebrew canon. They didn't organize it temporally. Um, Our Western minds think temporally all the time. I mean, we have these stinking things called clocks, that completely changed how we view existence even. So wait, you would, you would advocate that Ruth shouldn't be next to judges? No, I don't believe Ruth should be next to judges. Ruth, the, the beginning of Ruth is, uh, um, well, the beginning of Ruth, Ruth is the, um, virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. The phrase virtuous woman occurs three times in the old Testament, Proverbs 12, Proverbs 31 and Ruth three. So the virtuous woman is what ties them together. And the BHS ordering has Proverbs, then Ruth, because that's the connecting piece. Then in the Hebrew canon, at the end of Ruth 4, you have a man with a name, Boaz. You have another man that doesn't have a name. His name is literally John Doe, Poloni Almoni. It wasn't me that time. It's me. It's always Charlie. It's always Charlie's Dr. phone. Dr. Newman says hi. That's who just texted me. Texted me was Dr. Newman. Okay. She so just feel horrible, don't you? So I was, he, I was order, in the middle of something really good there. I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> they can still they can put it on slow mo and catch it before the ding. So this he has Joshua judges. I didn't finish. <laughs> okay, go go ahead, Vision. So at the end of Ruth, you have Boaz with a name, and you have John Doe. I mean, he doesn't have a name. His name is literally intentionally omitted from the text because he is a type of the selfish individual that is concerned about his own estate and not about doing God's law. Boaz is the godly man. And then in Song of Songs chapter one, you have chapter one, verse three, you have the woman and she is uh, exulting in the name of her, the male lover. Okay, so the connection between Ruth 4 and Song of Songs chapter 1 is the name. And so that's... church. Stop it. <laughs> I'm going to throw something. <clears throat> Don't what? get me going. I've never had a threat. That's, the best, that's the best joke ever, though, is like the church and the Song of Solomon. Oh, but this is so important. I've preached it on multiple occasions and... Okay, anyway, so we have to, we gotta keep got to keep moving, though. So Durucci's wrong on that point. So he, he actually puts it... Yeah, he has... Uh, Joshua judges, Samuel's kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, minor prophets. He moves Daniel almost to the end. That's then, so the... It's, it's the minor prophets, then Ruth, Psalms, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song, Lamentations. So it's a really wonky order. <laughs> but he, he, he has a comment, and he's a huge footnote. Half the page is his footnote. And he talks about how this is like the earliest list. 
I think is his idea. But so I had not interacted with that. I, I might've read about it once in a book about old text, old Testament textual criticism, you know, like mm-hmm. five years ago. So like, I, I was like, when I read it, I was like, I'm going to ask him about that. So that's, Hey, if that intrigues you, you know, give, give a doctor little a call. Uh, at the at the school, he'll tell you all you need to know about that. <laughs> no, I won't. But you can take my his, song of songs class or OT Sem. Is... Oh my word! <laughs> take OT Sem, and I'll talk about it there. I'm not gonna... Okay, who, who's who's got another book? Let's let's keep moving. I don't have a book this week, um, but we talked about like at, like wanting to write, and so I did write something. So I have a article in the Baptist Bulletin, and it is uh, it's not like a super hard article or anything. It's more of like an essay. Um, it's called Coffee in Christ, a Metaphor of the Christian Life. And what I do is I just talk about um, how I learned to love coffee and how that's kind of like Christianity. I didn't always like coffee. If you're a student at faith, you know that I love coffee. But I actually hated this stuff for a long, long time. And so in the article, what I try to flesh out is that an affection that you have is something you have to cultivate. You don't, you, you often don't have them, but passions are innate or intrinsic or like they're just always with you. And so in the essay, I try to make a parallel. I'm trying to just make a point. Um, I never had to be taught to like Mountain Dew. Like I had one sip of that stuff and it was glorious, but I had to learn to like coffee, but coffee is actually really good for you compared to Mountain Dew. And so I'm trying to build a case that when you learn to love the Lord, it looks like that because you're a sinner. You don't love him innately. He has to give you that love for him, and then you have to work at cultivating it. But once you love him, you understand how much better he is than everything else. So it's just a short essay. I really enjoyed it. Um, so anyways, we're talking about writing, so that's something I got. The other thing I want to do is if you read the article, I want you to think about coffee. But every time you think about coffee, I want you to think about your sanctification. So it's like something Ooh. people often have, and maybe it's be like a reminder for them. So. I That's love my it. book in business this week. It's is, great. Is there an easy way to find that if someone wanted Just to? Just go to the library and you can take a look at it. Faith Library has it. Maybe your pastor has a... Yeah, so you'd have to get a copy of it. They don't... They have... Um, on their website, they have articles by Mike Hess, who's the national rep for the GARB. And so his articles will get reposted electronically. But for this article, I think it's just print right now. So if you... someone yeah. contact the Baptist Bulletin mm-hmm. and ask yeah. to get a copy? Yeah, I think you can reach out and they would be happy to help you obtain the, one. Thinkling's they, universe. Do what you do. <laughs> yes. You call you call the office of Tweet Mike the Baptist Hess. Bulletin, regular Baptist <laughs> Press, and you're like, I need this coffee article by the Thinklings guy, and they'll know what you're talking about. It's actually really funny because the former registrar here at Faith, Dave Stout, he's he's very close to where we're recording. And as I walked in the building, he saw me. He said something like, wow, most people get a Baptist Bulletin article about theology, but you just got it on coffee. And it was like this big old dig. It was great. So that's okay. So we need to, Tim, you write a theological article that has something to do with lunch. And then I'll write yes. one that has something to do with dinner. This is great. And we'll have all meals covered. Or I guess if we're observing Hobbit meals, it would be a little different. It would be like we, the we morning. Second breakfast, <laughs> those types of things. But that's, you know, Tim, you probably want it. He's, yeah, I can see it in his eyes. I have a couple of books here. Um, I have A Feminist Companion to the Bible, The Song of Songs, edited by Athalia Brenner, uh, the first series. 
and then they have a second series as well. So I brought them both. The first one I actually found rather helpful. I thought the articles were quite good. Um, it is a consortium of authors, and they are by feminists, so they do not have a high view of scripture, and they've adopted some of our world's ethics, shall we say. Um, but still, several of the articles uh, I found rather help, helpful um, in the in the first book. And this is just something also, you know, when you publish something and then it, it catches on and does quite well, um, having a second one is like, hey, let's do a second one. Well, I would say that the second one is actually rather worthless. I was taking a look at it today uh, because I really liked the first one. Um, and just by the way, like some of the things that I liked in, in the first one, they had some articles on the, the wasps in Song of Songs 7, 1 through 10. It's called a wasp. Um, and, uh, they had a helpful article on that. And then another one that was wrong, but anyway, it was still interesting. Um, but in the second book, the second series of this feminist companion to the Bible, the articles were not as well documented. They're just not as well written. Athalia Brenner's article herself, that one was more of like her journey, which was interesting to get to know her biographically, but, uh, from a, um, understanding the Song of Songs perspective, it was not that helpful. So those are my books in business, not something I'm really going to recommend, but uh, specific articles, if you're studying the song, uh, there could be some good stuff in there for you. So I think we forgot to mention, if we go back to uh, Andy's article, it's obviously a 10 on the Thinklings of oh, no. scale. Oh, no, 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 no. It, it has to be. It's, a, it's written it's a by a short, Thinkling. Oh my. It's a 10. It's a 10. Oh my. I declare it a 10. <sighs> okay, so I'm going to close this episode off with a little bit of a devotional. And uh, where I got this from, I have to give credit where credit is due. I have an awesome pastor who preached from this text on Sunday and actually highlighted something about the text that I was not aware of that actually adds significant context and drives the meaning that I think is. So again, this would be a plug for it. This is why you need to understand the context of a passage. So it's John chapter seven. Let me find the right verse here. I had it pulled up and of course now I've scrolled away and where does it start? Yeah. So John chapter seven, verse 37. And the context is if you go to the beginning of this chapter, uh, the preceding context, Jesus has followed his brothers to Jerusalem to observe the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths, which is a very specific, uh, celebration in the Jewish calendar. And what I was not aware of is how they would celebrate this. There's actually a gate of the temple called the water gate. And what would happen is for the whole week of this celebration, there would be a very specific person. I don't know if it was a priest or a Levite, how, how it broke down. I don't, I wasn't paying great attention on Sunday. Cause I, I'm always, you know, I'm, I, my mind goes in rabbit trails, but so there's a guy who has the water. He, he comes in and he goes, they stop at the pool of Siloam and he fills up this very special water container and he goes through the water gate of the temple and they go in and there's this chanting of the, uh, I'm not sure what category of Psalms it is, but it's like Psalms 113 through 118. And so each day they progress a Psalm. So one day they're doing 113, then 114, then 115, then 116. And then what you'll notice though, is if you're in John 7 verse 37, it actually categorizes a very specific day of the celebration. On the last day of the feast, the great day, 
And that would be the last day of this celebration. And what they did on that last day is the procession would happen exactly the same. The guy would come with the water and they would fill it up and they'd go in. But instead of just one trip around and dumping it out into this ceremonial pot or whatever, they actually did everything seven times. So, and they would chant through all of the Psalms on that last day. And so there's this whole celebration of the water and what they're remembering in the feast of tabernacle or the feast of the tent is they're remembering their wandering in the wilderness. And how did God provide for them in the wilderness? They didn't have water. And then God through Moses provides the water and it's this miracle. And I actually have another seminary prof that thinks the reason Moses didn't get to go into the promised land is that when he struck that rock, he ruined the picture. And so God punished him for that. But here's this rock that is meant to maybe uh, be a type of Christ and he's the provider. He's the one. And so this is the, the Feast of Tabernacles. They're remembering how God provided the water in the wilderness. And for seven days, they've watched this procession of going to the pool and filling up the container. And then they go and they dump it through. He walks through the water gate. He dumps it out in there. And all of the Jews celebrating are chanting these Psalms. And this last day, they've done it seven times. He's gone around this pot and then they're chanting all of these Psalms. And look what happens. And Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And it's like this great picture of the rock in the wilderness. The one who can satisfy you is right here. I'm the guy. And they had not caught this yet. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we could go off into a great uh, discussion about the Holy Spirit based on verse 39 and different ministries of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament and the New Testament and how those things look different. But the the big devotional thought here, kind of going back to Andy talking about that Mountain Dew earlier, like you taste it and it's like, oh yeah, but you know what? You start drinking Mountain Dew, it's a slippery slope. You can never drink enough of it. Yep. And... Contrast that with a much better thing here. Like these, these people who were trying to find the source of this water, the one that provided for them in the wilderness, God is right there in their midst. He's the Messiah. And he's saying, hey, if you're thirsty, if you want life, come drink. And what he means is he's believing me, trust me. And that's true in a salvific sense. And that's true in a sanctification sense. If you need Christ to forgive you of your sins. You have to believe in him to be forgiven. But then how many other times throughout life, having believed, do I try to find satisfaction in life and other things? And the same message is true. If you're thirsty, here's the guy. Drink from the well that is Christ. And earlier in the book, he's already said things like this to the woman at the well. But uh, that's, that's just a quick devotional thought. I was really blessed by that at church on Sunday. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. Do you guys have any closing thoughts on that? Uh, and this text has kind of stood out to me, um, from a little bit different perspective, but as they're doing this, going through this, um, I don't know, ceremony. Okay. Going through the ceremony and then Jesus stands up and he makes this announcement how many people would have heard him say that? I'm like, 
whoa. Okay. Because think about it. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. It's all about me and believing in me and following me. As I thought about that, I was just like, man, how many people have been like, man, what an arrogant jerk that guy is. Yeah. Um, some did. <laughs> yeah. If you follow the text, verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this is the prophet. And they're going right back to like Moses. Others said, this is the Messiah. This is Christ. But some said, is the Christ, the Messiah to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. They, th- this idea uh, of, of pride and arrogance is just with discussions with um, unbelievers or scoffers. What I've noticed is if you speak the truth to them, and, you know, we have to be careful that we are humble because we're not Jesus. <laughs> but um, the claim that is frequently leveled, I don't know about frequently, but at least it's happened a few times, is pride. Oh, you're so proud, you know, because our culture has associated truth and knowing truth with arrogance and pride because you think you have it figured out. To the point where it's like you can't even say this is the answer. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And so, I don't know, that's just kind of resonated with me in this text. And I don't remember, I've been in this text not that long ago. And I remember thinking about this passage specifically. Like, man, everybody would have thought, what an arrogant jerk he would have been. And then I guess it was, it was helpful for me in just uh, rejuvenating my spirit and thinking, you know what, my responsibility is just to speak the truth. And the truth is the truth. I don't have to apologize for it. I don't have to ask for somebody's forgiveness. The truth is the truth. And they're going to be held accountable to God one day for it. And I just need to be that faithful messenger. Anyway, that was something that I took from this passage as well. Oh, man, I don't even know if I would add anything. The only thing I guess I, that jumps to my mind is the the people are, are desiring satisfaction. And Jesus is saying, it's only in me that like you're going to truly have life. And I just think all these people who are trying to live their lives for various idols and selfish things, none of which can ever satisfy. So I think like Jeremiah and like the empty cisterns and whatnot. And it just reminded me, you wouldn't know this by looking at me, but one time I did a diet once. And <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, what was interesting about it is you had to eat like very healthy food and you couldn't eat bad food. And I went an entire month eating regularly and never being hungry. It was the weirdest thing. I get done with a meal and I was satisfied, I was satiated. And it dawned on me that like I can put a bag of Doritos in front of me and I can eat that whole bag and I never get satisfied. I just get sick. And that's why I quit. And here I think Jesus is like, like he's the thing that satisfies. He's like what I'm designed to live for. Just like healthy food is what he designed our bodies to run on. And it's, I don't know, it's just interesting. He says the water thing and I'm thinking how many times I'm thirsting for him or for eternal things and I go to like an idol to satisfy it. And so that was just the thought that jumped into my head. Yeah, we could we could talk more. There's the, the actual, the full narrative goes down through verse 52 and there's like a discussion about what the Pharisees want to do and like, hey, why hasn't nobody, why hasn't anybody arrested him? And then there's this guy named 
Nicodemus who kind of chimes in there and he's shown up in the book of John before and they're wanting to judge him for what he's teaching and like, let's throw this guy in the jail and Nicodemus who had gone to him before and who was one of them, the Pharisees said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. They're actually really uh, messed up with what they actually know of Jesus. But yeah, it's I, interesting too how Nicodemus is into this discussion. Isaiah 9 says the light comes from the Galilee region specifically. So like they misrepresent the Old Testament scriptures there. And I think just, I want to chime in really quick. I think sometimes we think of the Pharisees and the law people as having great and expansive knowledge of the Bible. And there's many times where this happens. And I actually think they don't actually know the Bible that well. And so I think it's, it's often used when people pit knowledge of the Bible against knowledge of God. I think these people actually didn't know the Bible as well as we think they did. Yeah, they I think knew they the had traditions. like a superficial knowledge mm-hmm. and traditions, mm-hmm. but they didn't actually know the word. Well, bringing bring our podcast full circle and we'll close on this. Would you say that maybe certain genres they knew better? <laughs> like they maybe knew the law, like the Pentateuch really well, but then all these prophets, they're kind of like, Mrah. But they didn't even know the law that yeah, well they because the point of the law. yeah, they did it's the right point. there. They yeah. absolutely missed it. They, just, I mean, they, they're the blind leading the blind, so they can't expect that much of them. They created, <laughs> they created a law to their liking, and then perverted the law of God in that creation. So yeah, okay. Well, hey, thanks for listening. We'll uh, see you in a few weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Thinklings Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, or potential topics that you'd like us to discuss, you can contact us through our email, thinklingspodcast at gmail.com. Remember, don't let this conversation end with this podcast. Read good books, talk about them with your friends, and always continue to cultivate your mind. See you next time on the Thinklings Podcast.